Mike Hummel joins me on episode 36. Mike is a West Coast blues harp player who has put out some great harmonica songs in his catalogue of over 30 albums. A real connoisseur of the blues, he has drawn inspiration from a wide range of the classic players. Mark felt a particular affinity with Little Walter early on and received a Grammy nomination for his 2013 album, Remembering Little Walter. This was part of the Harmonica Blowout series, where he has put together numerous tours featuring some of the best harp players around. Mark has been a hard touring bluesman for over 40 years and has written a book about life on the road. He's currently working on a solo show as he prepares to get back out playing live gigs once again. So, hello, Mark Hummel, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. Good to be here. You were born in the east of America, but then you, you moved to the west coast. My parents met in New Haven, Connecticut, and then we moved to, when I was about six months, they moved to California. I was raised in Los Angeles, and then I moved up to the Bay when I was about 17, 18 years old. So, so what got you interested in music in your youth? We had a lot of music you know, just around us. I mean, you know, the, the babysitters and stuff that we had would play R&B in the car. I was raised in East LA, which is kind of the barrio, the Mexican barrio. And and most of the uh, Mexican-Americans listened to um, R&B back then, you know, and that was everything from Stax to Motown to some blues like Jimmy Reed or Slim Harpo. But it really wasn't till high school that I really kind of jumped in both feet into music. And that was mainly through the rock blues scene at the time. I got into it 68, something like that. That's when I got into, you know, psychedelic music. And mm-hmm. uh, through that, I found the found the real blues. And that was just because I kept seeing Willie Dixon and Muddy Waters and uh, Helen Wolf's names. And that made me curious because those were all the songs I liked, the ones that were penned by them. I hope my lady's home when I get there. Oh, this walking. I don't mean my mother, no. I mean my wife. My mother-in-law, she's always there. So we'll just keep on walking. Uh, I understand you saw a few players when you were young. I think you saw Buddy Guy and Junior Wells first in concert, but then you saw some of the others you like, like James Cotton. Uh, I know you're, you're a fan of Paul Busfield. Uh, yeah, I was pretty much a fan of anything harmonica at that point, especially blues harmonica in particular. But yeah, I saw Buddy and Junior first in 1968, and they were kind of doing more of a, I mean, that's when Junior was doing more of a James Brown kind of trip. So he wasn't playing as much harmonica. So that didn't quite, I'm sure I'd love it now, but back then it was kind of, it went sort of over my head. I think I went to that concert to see Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janice. And I miss both them and Albert King because they came on so late. It was like everything ran behind. It was like an all-day thing. It wasn't really till 
70 or so that I picked up the harmonica and then I immediately went out and saw uh, Brownie and Sonny at the Ashgrove in Los Angeles and then I saw James Cotton there and then I saw Charlie Musselwhite there and yeah I saw Butterfield play at the Troubadour I saw all kinds of people Muddy Waters at the Whiskey A Go-Go B.B. King at the Pasadena Civic when we get into the blues revival stage these guys were starting to come back and get gigs after a bit of a lull after the 50s Yeah, it was definitely during the blues revival. The funny thing about Los Angeles growing up there was that I was pretty unaware of the actual how thick and heavy the the blues scene actually was there because it was kind of relegated more to the the ghetto clubs and South Central and kind of like jazzy places like the Parisian Room and South Central. You know, you could go see Louis Jordan. You could go see Charles Brown, Lowell Folson, T-Bone Walker. Uh, Big J. McNeely, Big Joe Turner, Pee Wee Creighton, George Harmonica Smith, Big Mama Thornton. All these people were playing on a regular basis. But to be honest with you, I got into the Chicago blues really hot and heavy. I was kind of more interested in the out-of-towners. But in retrospect, I mean, I saw most of the people I just mentioned, but they weren't my central focus. It was a little, the, the L.A. blues stuff was a little too jazzy for me at the time. And I was kind of just locked into just straight harmonica and slide guitar. I didn't like horns at the time. I, I mean, I and I really changed all my viewpoints on all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much, I think, you know, like me and a lot of guys, I think you were getting into the the blues harmonica isn't it you just want that raw harmonica sound didn't you at that age and that's kind of what you're obsessed with and like you say if it didn't have harmonica in the blues i wasn't interested in myself but like you say quite a lot of the guys those older blue guys they did move out to to la didn't they there's quite a good scene there well the south there was a really strong southwest blues scene in other words almost all the texans moved to la and a lot of the guys from you know like lowell folson from oklahoma and people like percy mayfield from louisiana yeah everybody was was recording there and that was the reason because you know all the studios in the western part of the united states were in los angeles so that's basically where everyone that was you know from that part of the country moved to was la i just watched this documentary like yesterday again i hadn't seen it for about 10 years and it just reminded me of what an amazingly rich scene was going in the 70s in los angeles and and like i say i was gone by 74 I was gone, but I would come back and visit my parents. And so I did hear a lot of those same people. I mean, I, I you know, I saw George Smith quite a number of times in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I saw Cleanhead Vincent. I saw uh, Big Joe Turner quite a bit. Uh, Pee Wee Creighton. You know, there's a number of people, Joe Liggins. There's a number of people I saw all the time. You know, I didn't really realize how rich it was, I guess, in the sense of, uh, you know, the horn-led you know, guitar-based, you know, blues that was, you know, people like T-Bone Walker. I mean, I sure wish I could have seen him or Louis Jordan. God, I kicked myself for not going to shows like that. You you know, you're associated with the West Coast sound, yeah, and obviously there's a lot of famous uh, West Coast uh, blues harmonica players, you know, Rob Piazza and William Clark and then Kim Wilson. So did you not sort of become part of that West Coast scene? Oh, I definitely was part of the West Coast scene. I mean, you know, Guys like Clark and Rod, I mean, I heard about Kim really early on. They were all kind of devotees of George Smith. 
you know, I followed George big time. I remember, you know, trying to go hear people. There was a club called Rick's Blues Bar in Venice Beach. And I remember trying to go there. And I think by the time I actually was able to go and, and check it out, it was it had already closed. Sometimes my timing was just poor. <laughs> but I can definitely hear influences your sound, certainly some sort of Rob Piazza sound. Those guys were a bit older than you, yes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Rod was definitely, he was a lot of our senior. I'd say Clark was closer in age. Kim was a little closer in age. You know, Musselwhite's definitely a senior. So, you know, I mean, I was definitely looking up to certainly Rod and Charlie because they were, you know, they'd been around for a lot longer than me. But you say, you know, you were into the Chicago blues. So did you sort of work on that, developing that West Coast sound in the more sort of swinging up tempo? I really developed that once I got up here. That's the best way to put it. When I moved up to the Bay Area, I found out pretty quickly that if you're going to play blues, you weren't going to really meet Chicago-type blues players. You're going to meet guys that played in that more T-Bone Walker, Lightning Hopkins, you know, Lowell Folson, you know, Big Joe Turner. That kind of style was much more what was happening in in the Bay at the time. So that was eventually kind of what I adapted to because it was out of necessity. It was because there was really no one until I met Mississippi Johnny Waters and and this guy, Sonny Lane, that started the Blues Survivors with me. And that was like 1976 or 77. Until I met them, there was really nobody to play with that played straight Chicago blues. It was guys like Sonny Rhodes or, you know, who was a guitar player and a slide, kind of a lap steel slide player later on, or, or or J.J. Malone, who was, you know, J.J. could kind of go either either direction. He could play kind of more Chicago-type stuff. But, uh, oh, a guy named Charles Huff, uh, Johnny Fuller lived here at the time. This guy, Cool Papa, that I worked with initially. Uh, you know, Little Joe Blue lived around here. So all these people, they were kind of more, they had a little bit more of an uptown flavor to what they did. In other words, they merged well with a saxophone, where, as you know, you don't think of Chicago blues as having a sax. Uh, but the fact is that, you know, Muddy and Little Walter both had sax players in their band. People don't know that. You met some of these guys as well, didn't you? I think you, I heard you say you'd, you'd sat in or you, you'd done an opening for a Junior Wells show. And I think you knew James Cotton. And um... I knew James. Junior, I just opened for one time. I didn't really. I got to meet him, and he was he was really nice. He bought my record album off me, and but yeah, I mean that was that was a thrill. You know, it's a thrill when any of the older guys you know would patch on the back. That was huge. Somebody like Albert King or Junior or Willie Willie Big Eye Smith or or Calvin Jones, guys like that. You know, when they would patch on the back. That meant the world. Yeah, and they were quite open to the, you know, these white guys coming along and playing their music, were they? Well, they were. I mean, you know, when I first moved up here, the only place you could really play blues was in black club. There weren't really any white clubs other than the Fillmore or something, you know, where you had to be huge to play there. So, you know, there really were very few venues to play blues in except for black blues clubs. So that's where I went. I went to, you know, Rich North Richmond where there were, you know, two or three blues clubs. There was Eli's in Oakland, a place called the Deluxe Inn that was a great 
kind of juke joint place. And I was just, you know, I was just jamming with, you know, friends and playing in bands and, and all that at that point. And for me, it was a real eye opener because till I moved up here, I'd only played with, you know, guys my own age that were white guys or Mexican guys. And up here, it was like all of a sudden I was thrown in with, you know, black dudes that were, you know, 20 years older than me. So it was a real difference in getting an education in blue. And 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 the thing I was thinking about the other day that was kind of interesting is it wasn't like everyone accepted you. Some people did and some people didn't. And there was horn players I remember were really resistant to kind of befriend a harmonica player. They thought harmonica players were pretty obnoxious, you know. <laughs> So, you know, it was usually guitar players and singers and maybe a piano player or something. But so it was it was an interesting deal because, you know, the people that would accept you were usually audience, older people from from the South that were in the audience. And, and they just like seeing a white kid that was into blues. And there were, you know, there were a few of us, but not many. I mean, usually, you know, in those clubs, there'd be maybe either just me or maybe one, me and one or two other guys that were white musicians that were playing, but it was it was not very many. And so, you know, you've obviously paid your homage to the you know, to the classic harmonica blues players. I saw your Harping by the Sea uh, uh, workshop early this year in February, where you play through all the different styles of all the great players, you know, um, Big Walter and, and, and the first Sonny Boy, Sonny Boy, Little Walter, etc. So, you know, you go through and play all those styles. So, I mean, I mean what, what do you think about that, you know, about, um, you know, just knowing that, you know, knowing that language that they played, obviously, and putting your own spin on it as well. I think that's very important. For me, it was a necessary way to play because that was kind of how I built up a repertoire of licks. It was how I built up my technique. It was how I trained my ear to be able to listen. So for me, it was a real necessity to be able to kind of replicate the classic solos and the classic styles by these these icons. Whenever somebody tells me that they got their own style and they can't name an influence, that tells me they probably can't play very well. You got to have something to build off of. I mean, everybody from James Cotton to Junior Wells to Lil Walter to uh, Big Walter Horton, all of them had people that, you know, Jimmy Reed, they all had people that they kind of based what they did off of. Yeah. You know, I know, I know everyone's influences, you know, where they come from. Yeah, again, I'll put a link on if people haven't seen that workshop. It's really interesting uh, to hear you talk through that and, uh, you know, the influences that they had on each other. So it's also interesting that those, those classic guys, everyone listens to those, but there's lots of great players, you know, who've come after that. Like yourself, for for example, you know, there's loads of great players around, but everyone listens to those classic players, don't they? And uh, right. good reason, but um, yeah. You know, and the thing is, I've always been drawn to pretty much everybody that from that era. In other words, I don't limit myself to just like, I'm just going to try to play like Little Walter. I'm just going to try to play like Big Walter. I listen to everybody. I listen to, you know, Jerry McCain, Snooky Pryor, uh, Little Sammy Davis, you know, Junior Parker, Buster Brown, you know, Forest City Joe. <laughs> I can name, you know, dozens of players that I listen to, you know, besides the classic guys, Sam Myers, you know. 
I mean, going back a little bit to when you started, so I think you, you did the usual thing, you know, you kind of met, you started playing with some of your friends, yeah, you, you were playing on some harmonica and I think a bit of guitar and, and that's how you got started uh, playing in bands at that stage, was it in high school? Yeah, it was in high school that I started playing in bands and, and you know, back in that time, it was kind of like the main guys I was listening to besides, say, Little Walter and Sonny Boy were Paul Butterfield, you know, Muscle White somewhat cotton but you know i was also listening to say magic dick from jay giles band or or lee oscar from war like i say the 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 high school i went to was a lot of mexican americans and so it was you know they were real big on war you know they were really big on you know soul music you know they were big on rock too so you know there was a lot of rock influence in a lot of the, the musicians that i played with so you know i was kind of the least rock of of all my friends. I was the one that was really into the older styles of blues more than anybody else. But to just play, I had to learn. If someone wanted to do a war song, I'd do a war song. And were you singing at this stage? You know, I was starting to. I feel like I put more emphasis on my harmonica playing. I didn't really think that much of my voice. And it took me a while to really kind of get a grip on how to sing properly and how to sing, you know, phrasing wise and in pitch and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my working on singing was when I moved up here and um, hanging around with a lot of these older blues guys. That was a huge influence. (laughs) I knew so many great singers back then. They were stone blues singers, you know. Obviously, a lot of the well-known harmonica players, especially with the, about the classic ones, a lot of them did sing. Yeah. What do you think about that? About the need to sing as a harmonica player? So, oh, I think it's a necessity. Yeah. And, and obviously, that makes you the band leader as well. You can choose the songs and nice harmonica-led songs. So, is that something you really push then? When you, so you, as you mentioned earlier, you got into the Blue Survivors. What in the nineteen seventy-six? Were you the lead singer in that band then? I was not. That was the thing. I mean, I started that band with this these older guys, these guys who were like probably 20 years my senior, Mississippi Johnny Waters and this guy Sonny Lane. Actually, initially it was a guy named J.J. Jones and Johnny Waters initially, but J.J. left pretty quickly and then Sonny filled in. And Sonny and Johnny went way, way back. They went back 20 years as friends and, and Johnny was just an absolutely awesome Chicago blues singer. And he could sing, you know, Muddy Waters. He could sing Jimmy Rogers, Otis Rush, you know, Little Walter. He could sing all these things. So my attitude was I'd rather back him and sing just a little bit and uh, get some experience under my belt before I tried to front out the band. So for the first five years that I was working with him, I only sang maybe, you know, a third or at the most half of the night. And then he'd be the featured guest. At the time, I don't think I was a very good singer back then. It took me a while to really get to be a better singer. I'd say it wasn't really till the early 80s that I started kind of getting a handle on my voice. And even then, you know, I started taking vo- vocal lessons and, and just continually working on it. Yeah, because it kind of holds a lot, of, a lot of harmonica players, you know, they feel that they should sing, but don't feel they've got a very good voice. Like you say, is it something that is crucial? You know, is it something that really people need to push themselves to do? I think they need to, you know, both take lessons for one. Unless you're a golden throat, like Curtis Salgado or Kim Wilson or somebody like that, Sugar Ray Norsha, those guys just seem to have great voices from the get-go. Unless you're like that, I think you really got to put the time and effort into into working on your voice. 
you know, instruction is really helpful. Having somebody that can kind of show you the path and warming up is really important. Getting your phrasing and your and your pitch together is so important. Those are huge. And knowing what you can sing. I mean, that's that's huge too. I mean, you know, I used to try to sing stuff that I had no business trying to sing. If I'm singing an Al Green song, it's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I thought I could do it or James Brown, but, you know, I tried it for a while and then I kind of got rid of it. Yeah, but it's funny though, isn't it? As you say, there, it's something you really have to work out. I think a lot of people almost feel like you should be able to sing almost naturally. Yeah, but uh, that's a ridiculous thing to think. And I and I mean, you know, the biggest thing for harmonica or voice or anything else is tape yourself. That was one thing I did from the very beginning was I would tape myself and I would tape gigs and I would tape my practicing. And that way I knew what I actually sounded like, because until you know what you sound like, it's real easy to just BS yourself into thinking you're great. I mean, I'm learning guitar right now again. You know, I'm working on guitar. I've been messing around with guitar for years, but I don't touch it sometimes for 10 or 15 years. Now I'm really into it. And it's like, one of the ways I'm getting better is to listen to myself play on a tape. We'll get into talking around uh, about your recording career now. You've done, well, I think well over 30 albums, haven't you? have got out there some some great output. You know, you've got an album coming out pretty much every year since the sort of early ni- early 90s. So yeah, loads of great recordings. I've been checking them out over the last uh, week or two uh, before talking to you. And, you know, you're known as a West Coast player, as we said. So, But you also like to definitely delve into other areas, don't you? There's Delta Blues, obviously Chicago Blues, a bit of swing, a bit of, bit of jazz thrown in there and uh, more recently the uh, you've gone back to sort of 1920s 1930s which we'll get on later so you know what about the recordings over all these years how have you approached it the main approach i've tried to have is to always come up with something that's a little bit different than what i did before i don't want to be one of these people that just kind of puts out the same album year after year and i've heard a lot of groups fall into that bag where they just kind of do the same record over and over and over i make a real point of trying to come up with new ideas that won't won't make the albums repetitive. I'm really into the acoustic thing over the last few years. I want to say in 2010, I did a, an album called Back Porch Music, and that was kind of one of the first acoustic things that I did. I even did some things in on Heart of Chicago. I did three acoustic numbers. You know, I mean, I've been doing acoustic stuff off and on for years, but now I'm getting more and more seriously into it the older I get, it seems like. For me, acoustic blues... And the country blues, the Delta blues, it gets into the source of what blues is. You know, one of the things about me, I mean, I'm a harmonica player, yes, but I also am such a blues nut. I really, truly love all these different styles of blues. And I I love jazz, too. I mean, there's all kinds of different types of music that I really am a fan of. For me, a lot of it is just kind of going back and there's a musicologist in me somewhere because uh, I love that idea of, of tracing back where something comes from as close as you can. I've seen uh, I've seen some of your Facebook posts recently where you're talking about documentaries. It's obviously, it's coming through very strongly, that love you have in the history. and To me, African-American blues is one of the real treasures of, of the United States. The, the way black people in this country have taken all the bad stuff that's happened to them and turned it into art, I think is just one of the most miraculous things in the world. 
what blues did is it, it was a, it was a language. You know, I, I, that was one of the great things about this documentary about LA guys. And, and it had Lowell Folson in there talking to, uh, Margie Evans and Lloyd Glenn. Lloyd Glenn was a piano player that used to play with Lowell. It was just amazing listening to this documentary where they were talking about how a lot of this stuff was code for, you know, uh, how to describe things, whether it was problems with your girlfriend or problems with your boss or whatever. You know, at one point, Margie Evans says to Lowell something about, I never understood how, you know, blues singers would be talking about, oh, my Lord, you know, and, and the church would say that was blasphemy. He goes, well, what else are you going to say when you're looking at being dis, you know, disrespected or, or disgruntled? You know, what else are you going to say? You know, who's the per- first person you're going to, you're going to go to, you're going to go to God. Back to your recordings again, and the early stuff. One of the ones I, I heard from yours is uh, from your '94 album, "Lost in the Shuffle." A lot of things you you do really well uh, through all your albums is really great uh, harmonica instrumentals. You know, I had a fascination with doing those instrumentals. And part of that is because when I first got into it, I mean, I did an instrumental record back a couple of years ago called Heartbreaker. One of the reasons I put that out is a completely instrumental album, because I remember when I first got into harmonica, even Lil Walter, I didn't want to hear anyone sing. I just wanted to hear guys blow the harp. And I thought, well, I'll try to put out a record that's just, you know, harmonica instrumentals and see how that kind of response that gets. And the other thing was I did an album that was not just blues. It was it was very jazzy. It had some uh, acoustic blues on it, you know, some Chicago shuffles. It had a lot of jazzier stuff on it as well. That was kind of my modus operandi on that was to, you know, do something that was strictly for harmonica players. Some great tracks on there. Uh, and you like this kind of uh, play on that hyperventilating that is, is a track. And you also do on that album, Evan's Shuffle, which is uh, one of my all-time favorite uh, tracks. Of course, Little Walter played that originally. And uh, so you do a yeah, great version of Evan's Shuffle. <laughs> That's a great album, that one. Definitely recommend people checking out that one for lots of great harmonics to listen to. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then we did the Little Walter tribute thing on Blind Pig, and that was that was really fun to to make that record, you know, with Charlie Musselwhite and Billy Boy Arnold, Sugar Ray, Norsha. And, James Harmon. Yeah, James Harmon. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. Getting on to that. So um, this one, uh, um, album album of the year and best traditional blues album. So it won some awards, this one, and was Grammy nominated as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. That was a big thrill. So was it your idea to put this together? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was from a tour. We had done a tour in January of 2012, and the tour had been... Uh, uh, Charlie and, and, and Billy Boy, uh, Sugar Ray. And, and at the time we had Curtis on that tour. But then when Curtis couldn't do it, I, I, I asked James to do it. Curtis couldn't do it because Alligator wouldn't let him do more than two numbers or something. So, you know, he really wanted to do it, but Alligator wouldn't budge on that. So we ended up getting uh, James to do it. And we did it like almost 
a year later. We we ended up doing the album live down in San Diego instead of um, in the Bay Area because they had a really nice club down there that we could record at. And so you uh, well you did Blue Light on there, which uh, is one of your the ones you chose. That's one of your favorite of his, is it? Kind of chose that because, you know, little Charlie really liked that number and could play it really well. It was also one that had both chromatic and, and diatonic on it. That was the other reason yeah. I chose it. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is my set included quite a few different numbers. I had, well, I think I, I had recorded Rocker. I'd done uh, I Gotta Find My Baby. I, you know, I did a bunch of other numbers on there. But unfortunately, the first set that we did that night got erased. By accident, this guy walked by that was one of the monitor guys and he unplugged the tape, you know, recorder and completely erased the set off the computer. So we had to do the second set. That's what ended up being the album. Was the first set as good as the second set? I thought the first set was better, but, (laughs) you know, because we had a bigger crowd. It was, you know, on a weeknight. So there was a sold out crowd for the first set. Second set had about a half a house. So you would have won that Grammy if it had done the first set. That's right, exactly. There's lots of Little Walter songs dotted throughout your album. So Little Walter clearly is a, is a massive influence. You. I've, heard, I've heard you talk. Oh, he was massive, yeah. You know, the funny part of all this was that when I started playing, like I say, you know, I went and saw Sonny Terry. I had a Sonny Terry record, Sonny Terry and Brandon McGee record back, you know, when I first picked up the harmonica. And I tried to learn Sonny Terry stuff. And to be honest with you, it was it was so out of my element. I just couldn't wrap my head around the rhythms that he did. For some reason, Lil Walter was just much more easy for me to kind of figure out. I just had an affinity for his music. I mean, I was just such a Lil Walter nut. I would literally go to sleep as a teenager with the records on. You'd take the spindle off, so it would just play over and over and over. And I would go to sleep to those records, you know. They'd play for like four hours while I was sleeping. You know, that stuff's just really in my DNA, the Walter stuff. Yeah, I always wonder that. How, does that work if you listen to stuff when you're asleep? Does it seep into your subconscious somehow? Man? That's, what, that's what I always wondered. But <laughs> I know that it feels like it did because, I mean, it's amazing to me that I can still remember solos that I learned when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. So the, the guys you got together, you mentioned there for the Remembering Little Walter album. So before this, obviously, you're, you're well known for doing these harmonica blowout uh, sessions. And you've got a few albums out here where you've got Blues Heart Meltdowns, yeah? So you're getting various guys together to record. Again, live shows, isn't it, in a, in a similar vein? Is that where the idea of the, the Little Walter, uh, Remembering Little Walter album? Well, that was a harmonica blowout. They didn't want to call it that for some reason, but that's what it was. So, you know, what started you putting together these harmonica blowouts? I got the idea from a guy named Tom Manzolini, who who did a thing called the, the San Francisco Blues Festival, and he did a show called The Battle of the Blues Harmonicas. And uh, he started doing those, I want to say, about 1980. And he had me on the one in 1981, but then he never had me on another one. And it was kind of like I thought, well, if you're not going to have me on one, maybe I should start doing my own. 
and and he stopped doing his. That was the big thing. Was that I started doing mine on a real regular basis in 1991, and by that time he'd really cut down on. He did his for about 10 years, I want to say, and then just kind of let it slide and kind of felt like he'd had everybody that he wanted to have. He didn't have Junior or Cotton, but he had everybody else. Guys like uh, Sam Myers or Paul Delay or Muscle White, Rod and Rod and Little Charlie's bands played almost every single one. So often maybe people are a little bit protective about themselves and maybe don't want other harmonica players because it's like competition, yeah? But you've sort of gone the opposite way and you've gone, yeah, let's get all these guys together. And so were these like really successful shows? People like seeing the different harmonica players? And not- yeah, they were they were successful from the very beginning. I mean, um, the very first time I did a show was in uh, 91 at, at a little club. I, this was on a Sunday of Martin Luther King holiday. And so the next day was a holiday. So we had about 150 people show up on a Sunday night and the club owner basically said to me, hey, you know, let's do this every year because this came out really good. So that was kind of what we started doing was doing it every year at his club and then I'd add more clubs to it in different cities and towns and it went from Berkeley to, you know, Sacramento to Santa Cruz to Chico and gradually it just got bigger and bigger and it got to be longer and longer tours. You know, eventually just became at least a 10 to 14 day tour uh, up and down the West Coast. And we'd go all the way from San Diego up to, say, Vancouver, Canada. So that that was the way it got going. And then eventually I started doing East Coast tours with it, you know, Midwest tours with it, occasional European things. So it just kind of grew on its own. I think this was down to the popularity of the harmonica. Obviously, a lot of the players were well known as well, but there's quite a dedicated audience to sort of get those harmonica fans out all the time, was it? Well, it was really important to have names on it. That's one thing I think a lot of harmonica players don't understand that just because you're a good harmonica player doesn't mean people know who you are and that they're going to come see you and pay money to see you. Yeah. And when you've got a 20 or $30 ticket, you know, or sometimes up to $50, you got to have people that uh, the audience recognizes, you know, in other words, it's got to be a, say, a John Mayall or a James Cotton or Charlie Musselwhite or, you know, it's the old timers that seem to have the the biggest pull. Uh, yeah, so fantastic. Well done with that. And um, so a, a song you're well known for, I'll put as part of the intro, is Creeper Returns, which is a, a sort of James Cotton song. No, that's actually, uh, Creeper Returns is Little Sonny. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, and I was wondering the about that. The Creeper is James Cotton, and I do both of those songs. I, yeah. I've recorded The Creeper yeah. live, and I recorded uh, Creeper Returns in the studio. Those are both songs I do, but yeah, the the funkier one, the Creeper Returns, is a guy named Little Sonny out of Detroit. That's been a real popular number for me. That's just kind of that was sort of you know black slang back then, you know, for sneaking into your, your girlfriend's house, you know, when her man's gone. <laughs> That's what Creeper means. <laughs> the Midnight Creeper, right? I think James Cotton even called one of his that. 
Well, uh, my babe, isn't it? Uh, she don't stand under that midnight creeping. And... Right, exactly. Uh, and an- another song I really love of yours, uh, Mark, and uh, I entered the National Harmonic League in the UK. Uh, we had a competition which I entered, and I won the blues category playing your song, Harmonica Party. Off the- oh, really? And I remember the judge saying, oh, they had, they had everything, that song, and all the variety of the different things. So Yeah, really yeah well. well, thanks. Yeah, you know, th- that's another one of those, as Rick Estrin calls them, eruptionals. <laughs> <laughs> I took everything but the kitchen sink in that. You know, I put parts of the Creeper in it. I put parts of uh, Rocket 88. I put parts of Whammer Jammer. I had all kinds of stuff in that one, you know. And the story on that one is it's not live. Oh, is it not? Because uh, there's like a little intro at the beginning, isn't it, which is like the people talking. Yeah, what it was was I brought in a bunch of friends and I had them clink glasses and talk real loud. Ah, because I was going to ask, because one of the comments I always notice on that is one of the guys says, terrible service. And I was always thinking, well, if we recorded this in the club, it's not a very good advert for the club. <laughs> no, that was me. Okay, was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think at one point I go, these guys are really good. <laughs> Yeah, that's superb, yeah. Oh, that's good to hear, because I listened to that song though, so yeah. Great, and uh, you mentioned blues chromatic earlier on. You play, you definitely play uh, lots of blues chromatic. I've got a song I'll put on is Never Know More from the Retroactive album, for example. I love blues chromatic. Yeah. I mean, I just love chromatic in general. And one of the reasons I got, I think, more and more into chromatic was that so few harmonica players really play in other keys. In other words, they just, most harmonica players tend to play everything in third position in D or maybe E flat with the button in, but they don't really use the button. They don't know how to play, you know, they only play minor. Uh, When they play third, they don't know how to play major. You know, I play in G, I play in C. I'm trying to learn things in all the keys, you know. For a while there, like when I did Never No More, that's got a, uh, that's on a B flat in the key of C. So I'm still playing third position, but I, I'm using the button a lot to make it more of a major, major sounding third than a minor. So I'm like raising the flat of third on that. And uh, an album uh, you did in 2016, you seem to have a lot of success in your more recent albums. You've got uh, Music Awards. It's the, the Golden State Loan Star Review. Great song on there, Walking with Mr. Lee, which is uh, another great one of yours. Uh, it's- Yeah, now that song is not mine. That's one, again, by a, a, a sax player, uh, Lee Allen, wrote that song. And it was kind of a minor hit back in the 50s. Yeah, I just heard that song. I actually bought the 45 of that back in the 80s. I'd listened to it, and the, the drum on the original really reminded me of Juke. The guy's got a bunch of slap back on the hi-hat, and so it re- really reminded me of the drum beat on Juke. And and the more I listened to the song, the more I went, man, this would really go well on the harmonica. And so I just learned all the licks and, and started doing it like that. It sounds a bit it's a bit like uh, Charlie Muswatz doing Crystal Redemptor. It's a similar sort Exactly. Of- and I mean, there's been a lot of jazzier tunes that I've kind of adapted from saxophone phone songs. Um, There's one from a long time ago I did called Joe Meets Pee Wee that I took from uh, Joe Houston and and Pee Wee Creighton songs. I took these two songs and kind of melded them together, you know. 
and they were mainly sax lines and a couple guitar lines, you know. So to me, that that whole thing of kind of being creative with borrowing melodies from other songs is always a good thing for harmonica for harmonica players to look outside of just their instrument. I mean, Little yeah. Walter did that the whole time, and 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 actually all of those guys did that. James Cotton and Big Walter Horton, George Harmonica Smith, they all took saxophone parts and worked them in, out on the harmonica so that it sound or Sonny Boy Williamson. I mean, you know. Rice Miller, he he was doing that. You could just hear it. Yeah, there's a friend of mine in the UK called Ricky Cool who's doing that. He's putting out some YouTube videos at the moment, doing specifically that. He he uh, plays in that sort of swing and plays some saxophone, and he's he's doing exactly that. Uh, and your most recent album is the the Way Back Machine, where you you're doing these sort of uh, recordings from the nineteen well the, the feel at least of the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. That was something I kind of sort of stumbled on, and I don't mean stumbled on the music because I'd been listening to that music since I started almost. You know, some of the songs I was, you know, I'd been doing, you know, off and on for years. And some of them I just kind of got into in the last five years. Back in about 2015, we did a, a blowout that was kind of centered around the Bluebird sound. This is when I was playing with Little Charlie. You know, the, the Golden State Lone Star Band was initially a project that I can't, you know, I came up with when I started already. I'd been working with Little Charlie Beatty for about a year when I started that band and called Anson Funderburg to come in on it. And we tried it out and it went well. So we just did it from like 2000, I think it was 2012 or the end of 2011 through, you know, 2016. So I'd been using Charlie Beatty on all the uh, blowouts. And I think he might have come up with the idea of doing kind of a bluebird, older style kind of tribute to, to guys like, you know, the first Sonny Boy and Jazz Gillum. I was doing already doing a Jazz Gillum song, I think, with him and uh, Tampa yeah. Red and Big Maceo and Bill Brunzi and all these all these different old timers that were from that era. That was kind of the, the impetus when I did Wayback Machine. And it's really an old style of, you know, there were guys like Washboard Sam that kind of would do the thing with all with the washboard and little symbols and stuff like that. And so he kind of did this kind of almost his own version of that. And, and that's all we do in that group. I mean, we do pretty much all that pre-war stuff. It's, it's great for the harmonic as well as kind of lots of high end stuff, which is good for variety. But you know, a real standout song is that breathtaking blues. That's. Yeah, now that's in fourth position. And Breathtaking is a Rhythm Willie song. It's his adaptation of uh, St. James Infirmary. So, like, that's another guy I really want to get into his, that Rhythm Willie stuff, because, man, he was such a great harmonica player in first position. But it's a really different way to, like, for example, if you're playing Jazz Gillum, you have to tongue block all your blow band. And I remember when I was doing that 2015 blowout that Estrin was on, me and him were both learning how to play that blow band stuff. And it was like, it was a bear learning to play like that. It took some yeah. doing, because I'd always lip those blow bands. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, tough, that style, isn't it? You know, a lot of people who can play quite well, you know, when you try to do that sort of style, it's like, well, this is quite different, isn't it? 
it's quite a believe me man you can mess up real easy so a thing that comes through very strong with your albums and your playing is, you know, that it's tough being a uh, being a blues musician. You're probably being a musician uh, in general, but it's tough being a blues musician. It comes through quite a lot of your songs talk about this. You know, what, what's it been like being a, a gigging, touring blues musician for all these years? Well, I mean, I've been doing the road for 36 years or something. It's far from an easy life. You know, you look at anyone that does the road, whether they're traveling in their own Learjet or if they're traveling in a van like we are, no matter what you're dealing with, it's a hard way to make a living because you're dealing with you know, living in hotels, you're eating in restaurants every night, you're in a different place every day, uh, you're not getting as much sleep as you would at home. You're, it's a total adaption that you're doing with your life to live on the road. There's a certain toll that it takes the older you get. You know, music history is littered with guys that have died in car wrecks or airplane crashes or whatever. It's a strange way to live your life. And on this life on the road, because you, you've written a book called Big Road Blues. So yeah, that's all about your life on the road, yeah, and, and, and all the tough uh, the tough living that involves. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, especially in the day. I mean, the funny part of it that nowadays, I don't even know if that's ever going to come back. I really don't. I don't know that bands playing on the road is something that's going to continue going on. Because the way I see it is with COVID and with nightclubs at half capacity, or even if they become full capacity again. They've gotten used to musicians basically working for free almost on donations and working for the tip jar and doing their, you know, their online uh, live streams from their clubs, you know, for tip. Why are they going to start, you know, paying bands to play again? I don't know that they will. I mean, I've always gotten guarantees when I play. You know, I'd get an amount of money that I knew I could pay the guys. And so I just don't know what the future holds for, for touring touring musicians at this point. Yeah, and there's a lot more, as well as, you know, all the stuff over the last year, but, you know, a lot more people are doing solo shows, aren't they? A lot of stuff at home, doing recording at home. You know, this idea of a band is becoming less and less. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm learning to play with a harp rack and play guitar. You know, I'm not I'm not fooling around. I'm like, you know, I'm looking at it like, hey, you know, this might be the future. Maybe from now on, it's just me, me and my guitar and my harp rack. You know, I feel really fortunate that I've had a career and I feel really fortunate that I've had the chance to play music on a real regular basis on tour back when there were blues clubs. I mean, there's not blues clubs anymore. The blues club thing is a thing of the past from what I can see. Yeah. So is the blues survivor, uh, are the, are the blues gonna, is the blues going to well, survive? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it'll survive because there's young musicians that are playing it. But I think it's got to gr- grow an audience that's that same age group. Part of the thing about the blues is it, it's really popular with musicians because, you know, go to any jam, you know, there'll always be some blues. There's, there's quite a lot of blues jams going on. The musicians like the blues, but, you know, <laughs> it's almost like they're half the audience, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the reality. I mean, you know, the funny part of it is, you know, I do my blues harmonica blots all the time. You know, I mean, I do them every January and I, I do, like I say, a 10 to 14 day tour. The weird thing is I've noticed that it's not the harmonica players necessarily the ones supporting it. 
that's kind of disappointing to to see that that's you know that's how it is. You know, people got to support other musicians. Musicians got to support other musicians. Until that happens, I don't know what's going to happen with the scene. Okay, well, let's hope it has a big rejuvenation soon when things open up. Uh, a question I ask each time, Mark, is um, if you had 10 minutes to practice, you know, uh, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? And this is the kind of question about, you know, I guess, how do you structure your own practice? And, you know, what do you see as the most important things to work I mean, with? I'm always changing what I practice. I'm getting a larger and larger kind of practice repertoire together. I mean, now I'm playing guitar like at least 45 minutes a day. I'm playing racked harp 45 minutes a day. I'm playing Sonny Terry stuff, say 15 minutes a day, chromatic maybe 15 minutes a day. I mean, earlier during the pandemic, I was playing a lot more chromatic and, and Sonny Terry stuff. But because I'm playing the guitar now with the rack, that's kind of my main focus. You know, recently I've been getting into playing just with a track, like a backing track thing where I can blow like fast shuffles with the backing track. That's the kind of stuff I'm practicing now building a repertoire solo if possible. But I mean, I, you know, I, I love playing with other musicians. You know, we, we've been doing these online things, these live streams and stuff like that. We're doing another one of those on the 1st of May, like a little Walter tribute thing with Aki Kumar and, and Gary, Gary Smith. Yeah. So, I mean, what about playing on the rack? I've played that a little bit myself, but uh, I always feel the harmonica, it's different playing on a rack, isn't it? You're not holding it. You don't have as much control. And the way that you play, you know, you're you're a very full-on, very energetic player. So how are you approaching? Well, on the rack, I'm just trying to kind of do what I do when I'm playing with a with a mic, which is just, mm -hmm. you know, playing, um, say, Jimmy Reed style or, or Big Walter style yeah. or whatever, you know, with the rack. That's kind of what I'm doing. It's, it, but I... The really tricky thing with rap playing is getting your guitar in sync with where your harmonica is or, or playing, you know, the high note Jimmy Reed stuff and not having the rack move on you, things like that. It's a real it's a real trying thing being in sync with yourself and being in sync with the, the harmonica and the guitar being. But I love it. I mean, I'm really enjoying doing it. Getting on to the last section now and talking uh, talking about gear. So you're a, you're a sidle endorser. Yes. So which which the sidle harps you like? I play, play the uh, the 1847, uh, the woodcomb ones. What made you become a sidle endorser? Did they did you were you playing them? And well, they... actually, Muscle White kind of turned me on to him back in 07, and he just said, "Hey, try one of these," you know. He gave me one and I started, you know, playing it and he asked me what I thought. And I said, man, I really kind of like it. I'm getting into yeah. playing on these. And he goes, well, call him up. I might be able to get you an endorsement. Yeah, because he endorses them as well, doesn't he? Yeah. So he was able to get me hooked up with him. And, and man, it's fantastic because I think me and Charlie are the last guys that get free harps. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I've had a great relationship with those guys. Yeah, no, they're doing great and, you know, really, really helped push on the quality harmonicas, haven't they, when they came along? I think it made Honer up the game, didn't it, when they came along? It really did. I mean, to be honest with you, the way I ended up going with them is I said, well, why don't you send me a set of harps and let me see how I like them? And so I put the Sidels in my harp case and I had Honers in there and I had Sidels in there. And I'd play the Honers for a while. I go, these just aren't as loud. They're not getting the kind of compression that the side L's are getting. And so I just found myself just gravitating to the side L's all the time. And that's what made me just go with them. I wasn't interested in playing the uh, the, the honers after a while, but they did improve them for sure. Yeah. Are you playing the chromatic from them as well? 
You know, I have some of the chromatics, but I'm pretty much still a honer guy on chromatic. Seemed to me I was playing the 12-hole ones, and I still play those from Seidel, but the 16-holes seem to be the honers. Yeah. So you mainly play 16-hole chromatic, do you? Well, I do both. I mean, you know, if I'm playing a B-flat, those are pretty much always 12. And what about uh, any different tunings? I'm not really a tunings guy. I mean, I'm more of a position guy. I mean, you know, when people, uh, you know, talk about playing in a minor key, I'm always going to play third position or fourth position in minor. And uh, what about any overblows? I don't really overblow. I mean, I can do it barely, but frankly... uh, I, that's kind of how I started playing chromatic is, you know, I was playing chromatic way before overblows were even used. So I just figured I'll stick with the chromatic. I like just having the sound difference between a chromatic and a diatonic, you know, because the tone is different. When I hear guys playing, you know, the overblows, it's real impressive to me, but it's never been something that really made me want to learn that sound because the tone is different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's very much a difference. And I, again, I, I play a lot of chromatic and, and diatonic too. So I'm like you. I, I sort of think, well, I just play it on the chromatic rather than. Yeah. Uh, but you appreciate that they do get very sort of fluid lines doing the overblows, don't they? You know. They... Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, I can do you know pretty fluid stuff in third. And yeah. When I play creeper returns, that's in third. The original guy did it in second. And uh, and what embouchure do you use? Well, I'm using all tongue blocking, other than some blow bend stuff on the on the high end. And some triple tonguing on the, you know, the mid-range. Everything is tongue block. So, yeah. So, uh, like you're saying on the, the Wayback Machine album, you, you forced yourself to tongue block that. You weren't tempted to try and uh, to pucker that stuff at the top end there. Well, I mean, I, the only reason I pucker the, the blow bends is if I'm doing, say, Jimmy Reed style. Like, for example, in the rack, I tried to do tongue block blow bends on the rack because everything from nine down I could do. But I could not get that, like on an A harp, if I was doing that on a rack, trying to get the, the 10 blow to get that blow bend there on the yeah. 10 on, the, on an A. It was really a struggle. So it just made more sense to really lip those. Uh, but but uh, but if mm. I'm playing like holding the harp, then I still do, you know, the, the, the blow bends, tongue block. If I'm playing like that, you know, Rhythm Willie or, or uh, Jazz Gillum style, I'm still, you know, tongue blocking those. If I do Jimmy Reed, I, I don't mm. I don't tongue block Jimmy Reed because t- I don't think he was doing. I think he was blow, blow bending while lipping. And same with Lil Walter. I think Lil Walter blow bent and Big Walter. I think those guys were, I mean, you try to do like, say, hard-hearted woman and try to tongue block your blow bends like that. I can't get it up to that speed. I can do it, but it's not that fast. And uh, what about amplifier-wise? I know you you did have a Sonny Jr. Uh, amp. Is that what you're still playing? Nah, I, I ended up selling my Sonny's. So that, that I kind of got back into playing on a, a hand-wired basement. It was a basement kit is what I ended up buying from this guy. That amp sounds great. It sounds really good. And I still got an original 59 that is just unbelievable. But I've also found some other old amps. Like I found a Silvertone with 212s. It's just an amazing amp. I think it's like a 1437 or something like that. It's just a great amp. Are you, have you got a small amp as well you take out? Yeah, I got a bunch of small amps. I got a, a Princeton that I use. I got an airline that I use. I got one called a Hurricane. That's one my friend uh, 
my late friend, uh, uh, Rock Bottom, turned me on to a long time ago and gave me this little lamp called a Hurricane that's got like 1.8. And it just sounds killer. It's It's been one of my favorite amps for like 25 years, you know. So have you just discovered the amps that you like as you, as you sort of tried them rather than sort of going for a particular make or a model? Yeah, I, I'm just always changing my mind on, on amps. I mean, I got a concert. I got a the basement, the real basement and the basement kit and the... Uh, I mean, I had a magnetone. I sold that. You know, I just kind of go through amps. I mean, I, I was playing Meteors for a while, and I really liked those for a while. I get tired of one sound all the time. I got to change up my sound. That's good. They like say the different albums. You need a new amp for all your different albums, don't you? So you can get a different sound on them. Well, I mean, the one I go back to all the time is the original basement on the albums, because that thing sounds killer. Yeah. It sounds so good. I mean, that's the album really for the last, say, 20 years. That's been my main amp for, for recording. You know, I think that Golden State I did on the Silvertone. I did. The one with Walking with Mr. Lee, that's on the Silvertone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of the albums on Electrify have been um, have been the basement. Your microphone of choice these days. The way that usually works for me is that, again, I kind of don't like one sound all the time, and every room sounds different. So a lot of times what I'll do, I notice guys like Clark and Kim Wilson would always travel with a few different mics. Like they'd have, you know, maybe five different mics or something that they could get the sound of the club, you know, to match. And I found that was a really smart idea. So I started carrying like at least three mics in in each harp case. And that way I can match both the amp and and the room and everything like that. I've got a few that are my favorites. Generally, I almost always use uh, CMs or CRs and usually old ones like Black Label or whatever. And I'll put them in an aesthetic shell. I'll have my friend put them in an aesthetic shell. I got a real good harp tech. Uh, Mike Tech, a guy named Mark Overman that does mics for me. Yeah, I mean, he's he's made a number of custom, you know, JT30 shells with CRM or CR elements. I do use, um, you know, Great Human did, did one uh, biscuit mic for me with a really good CR in it. You know, I've got a T3, that that, that popular one that people seem to be using, uh, but I don't use it all that often because it because it's got a brush element and the brushes are really easy to break and they're really, you know, sensitive to heat or, or, or cold. So on the road, that yeah. kind of thing is a little nerve wracking, you know. And uh, do you use any effects pedals? No, I used to a long time ago. I used to use a delay, a real simple delay uh, pedal, but or an echo pedal. But you know, I just found that you know, straight in is usually how I like to play. Recording wise, do you use any particular setup, or do you leave that to the studio? Well, I mean, one one thing I I kind of picked up on a long time ago, and I, I think Rusty's in might have helped me with this idea was when you're recording in the studio to not just have one mic on your amp and don't have it necessarily just close, but have one close, one maybe three feet out or two feet out, and then another one maybe five feet out. Or the other thing is recording in a hallway is a great idea for ambient. So so yeah. Yeah, th- those are setups that I've tried, you know, a number of different times. Uh, there was a point there where we used to record out in Pacifica, and I'd always put the, the amp in the garage. Kid Anderson's where I do most of my recording now. A lot of times I'll put the amp in the washroom or in the hallway, put a couple different mics around it. Yeah, but you want something to try to give it an ambient sound. That's really important. Yeah, I've heard that from talking about quite a few Monica recordings to get that. People talk about recording in the bathroom and to get that reverb and natural reverb. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so last question then. Obviously, it's uh, it's been pandemic time, and uh, I see you've got a couple of shows on your website. You've got the one on May first, as you mentioned, about the Little Walter birthday uh, concert. Mm-hmm. That's an online thing. And the May sixteenth gig is that a, uh, a real gig? That's a real gig. That's outdoors, and that's a place we play in Berkeley called the Back Room. And they got, I think, me and Bob Welsh did one back in. Uh, I can't remember if it was the beginning of November, or the beginning of December, we did one there. And it worked out real nice. You know, I mean, it was, you know, people paid 20 bucks or something each and, and uh, we had a nice turnout. We're going to do that again. And then, and then uh, we're also doing the spa in August, but that's going to be online as well. I, I don't mean to sound so negative, but I don't want to put the cart before the horse with all this because I just don't know what's going to happen. And I am booking the, the blowout for January 2022 and and crossing my fingers that that all works out. I just don't know what's going to happen. So I'm kind of hoping that people are going to, they've all been locked up for a year, so they're all going to be desperate to go out. So there might be a big... Oh, that's what I think, yeah. But it might only last for a few months is the danger, yeah. But at least that first few months, it's like, yeah, everyone wants to go out and enjoy themselves. And yeah. so I'm hoping that that's going to be a, a real boom time. But Me too. Maybe everyone's you sustaining and watching Netflix now instead, and that's it. I think people are going to be very hungry for live music as soon as it's safe. I just think people got to be real smart about what, what they do and don't do. I, I think the idea of people jamming into a nightclub is a real bad idea right about now. And next year, I know you're, uh, you're, you're supposed to be coming over to the UK to play at the Hopping by the Sea event in Brighton. Right. Get down to that for sure and hopefully see you there in person. I'm really excited about that. That was so much fun. Yeah, no, it's always a great weekend that with Richard and the guys. So thanks so much, Mark Kamal, for joining me today. Well, thank you, Neil, for having me, and it was a pleasure. That's episode 36 wrapped. Mr. Mark Kamal, take us to that harmonica party. Oh, 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 oh.